Dr. Bonnie Koo is a dermatologist and former systems administrator at Morgan Stanley. She's a graduate of Barnard College and Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons and completed her dermatology residency at UC Irvine. She created the website Wealthy Mom MD to fill the void of knowledge and resources specific to women physicians on how to take control of their finances. She directs the Women Physicians Personal Finance Group on Facebook, the largest online community of women physicians mastering their finances. We discuss some of the financial issues that are more common to female physicians, from prenuptial agreements to taking care of financially ill-prepared parents or other family members, the importance of having your financial house in order, outsourcing to buy more time, and why it is important to secure disability insurance before you get pregnant. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Bonnie Koo, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you have a Facebook group dedicated to improving financial literacy among female physicians. So let's talk about some of the common issues that are specific to female physicians. You'd written an article on Kevin MD about some of these issues. And one thing that you mentioned is that although doctors have a lower divorce rate overall than the general public, female physicians specifically have a higher divorce rate than their male counterparts. And the more they work, the higher the rate of, or if they work more than 40 hours, tend to have an even higher rate. I know, we're lucky, huh? Yeah. So, so one of the things that you discussed in the past is prenup. Let's talk about prenups. What's your advice to female physicians about prenuptial agreements? So part of it is just education because I just feel like a lot of people don't even think about it. It's not that they don't want to do one. They just don't even think about it because, I mean... Hopefully, generally speaking, when you're getting engaged and getting married, it's like happy times, right? <laughs> so you're not you're not thinking about what the what if. And unfortunately, like you know, when I do bring it up and people, it's a very emotionally charged topic. And I really just try to use facts. And the fact that I say is, listen, the divorce rate's not zero, and that's that's really what it comes down to. And no one gets married thinking they're going to get divorced, but the divorce rate is still not zero. And so I just try to educate women on the basic facts that if you're the higher earner, and many of us are just, you know, just in terms of pure numbers, you know, you're, you can lose a lot of money. Um, so it's just kind of just at least be aware that this can happen and just sort of be aware of your money and that when you marry them, it's not just for love. Like it is a legally binding contract that you sign. And so I try to talk about that too, because people don't think of marriage as a legal contract a lot. Yeah, we have our ketubah, our, our legal contract, although someone told us that it was illegal, legally binding, and then we find out that it's not. It's, it's legally binding as far as our religion goes, but that's it. Yeah, so we, my wife and I started the prenup process, but we didn't complete it. Oh, so interesting. I was, yeah, so, and, and I think my advice would be to do the same thing, because what happened was it made us have a bunch of difficult conversations that we wouldn't have otherwise had context for. Right, yeah. like it made us have difficult. It made us have difficult financial conversations that would have only come up when there was a problem. So the fact that it made us have these difficult conversations when there wasn't a problem really 
made it less of a, a heated issue. And, and the reason that we ended up not having a prenup was my wife came into the relationship with some savings, right? Because she, she graduated college and then she started working like most people do. Yeah. <laughs> who had nothing but debt. So even though my earning potential is much higher than hers, we're in New York where if you get divorced, everything that you've earned during the, during the marriage gets split down the middle. So basically, if I signed a prenup, it would have protected her assets that she had going in and wouldn't have protected me at all. I mean, maybe we could have come up with something where if we get divorced, then you negotiate like the ramp, the, the slowdown in terms of like how much I would be paying her to continue her lifestyle. But like, ultimately, what I was told was that gets decided by the judge and they might actually throw out some of which. So the only thing that's hard and fast is her assets were protected, not mine. And so we decided to just abandon what was becoming an expensive process. Huh. Well, you know, I'm not a lawyer and, you know, I don't want to talk about your situation in particular. I don't know if that's quite true what you just said, but um, you don't need a prenup to protect her premarital assets as long as it stays separate, meaning like she doesn't commingle it, like put your name on the accounts. It's more obviating the need for a document. But um, you can definitely, you know, put, I mean, you could put lots of crazy stuff in the prenup. Like you could really put, people put some weird stuff in there. You can't put anything about child support or custody though. So people think that's something you can do. You can't because a prenup's between the, the two adults. It's not nothing to do with good kids because they're usually not born when the prenup is set. So that's something you can't pre-negotiate ever. But you can, I mean, I'm not, we're sort of using you as an example, but you could have decided, for example, like, you know, we each keep our own retirement accounts. You know, she could have given up her right to alimony. Like you can do that. So I've decided kind of the limit. So most people just don't think about prenups in general because they think it's a weird thing to bring up. They think it means like, oh, you don't trust me. But kind of like what you said, I really liked what you said about it kind of made you guys talk about some difficult things because I actually think a prenup has kind of the opposite effect. And I'll go as far as to say that I think prenups are actually quite romantic because it's you're really telling the other person like, I love you no matter what, and here's my proof. And in some ways, I think a prenup is kind of the ultimate proof that you know, that they don't really care about the money. Plus you can discuss these things, like you said, when you're not angry at each other. I was hoping it would have been proof that she would have said, you know what, you work very hard to become a doctor and I'm going to sign this document that says that you keep everything that you've ever made. But, you know, it didn't, didn't work. <laughs> well, it's funny, like, it's, it's like, so I don't, I'm not married, so we don't have a prenup, but we do plan on getting married and I do plan on having a prenup. And I've, I've thought about like what kind of, basic terms I'd put in. And, you know, I, I feel strongly that I want both of us to kind of walk away financially taken care of. And so we, I sort of make sure that he makes, he maxes out his retirement accounts. He, you know, he wasn't before he met me. And so that does mean that I might have to put some of my own money in it, but I just feel strongly that there's no reason for us both to be taken care of financially. And we talked about alimony, although Alimony is a sticky subject. So I think if both people are working and make decent money, there's really no reason for alimony as far as I'm concerned. But if a spouse becomes a stay-at-home spouse, then that's some, that's different, right? Because they're they're taking, I don't want to say a sacrifice because it sounds like they're doing this. That's something they don't want to do. But they are taking a calculated pay cut, basically a 100% pay cut to for the family. And so I do think those spouses do deserve alimony. Oh yeah, they're also taking a cut in terms of time spent building a career. 
because oh, yeah. the, the times if that time it's not just the money that they didn't make it's the potential progress they would have made in what made in whatever field that they were in yeah yeah so that's that that kind of becomes like not sticky but like you definitely want to account for that and so it's 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 tough but like you said i think if you end up going through the process and drafting a prenup great but i think like you said it's really kind of forcing uh, the couple to talk about these difficult conversations and we didn't talk about this before the show so let me know if i'm just coming out of left field but what, <laughs> what what's your take about commingling assets when you're when you're once you get married you know having joint checking and savings and joint credit cards and all that oh i mean you mean what's what's my opinion about them i mean matt and i have commingled everything. So right now we're not even married. So, I mean, people have different opinions about how to do the checking accounts. And I don't think there's one right answer, but I think in general, like we, we look at our money as one pot. Like I don't think about, oh, it's his money. It's my money that like, we don't think that way. And I don't think that's a great way to think about money as a couple personally, but I know lots of couples who keep their finances relatively separate and they're very happy. So I don't think it's a one size fit all, but I think it's, usually for the better to think of the money as one pot. And the commingling thing is only, it's only really a problem for like the premarital assets if you really want to keep that separate, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I was, the reason I bring it up is because I was listening to another podcast that had another financial blogger on it. I'm not sure if you've, if you've heard of Ramit Sethi. He's got oh, yeah. um, how, to, how to Be Rich or something like that. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and he just got married and he was talking about the fact that they had separate accounts and I just thought that was a, an interesting idea because the, we thought about doing that. And the reason that we didn't was, one, it just got really hairy and complicated. And like, especially since she's not working right now, like, does, does that mean she like gets an allowance from mine? But what it really came down to is if one of us is buying a bunch of crap that the other one doesn't agree with and is spending money in such a way that the other one doesn't agree, then we have a problem and we have to have a conversation. And so by keeping the assets separate, you know, you avoid having difficult conversations that you should be having because you're, that means you're allowing yourselves not to get on the same page. Yeah. I also manage all the money. So Matt doesn't even know what's going on. We have joint credit cards for everything and it's, I mean, it's the good news is he's not a spender. So if anything, I'm the spender. Oh, wow. So what's your, what's your vice? Uh, clothes and shoes. <laughs> From the financial blogger. Personal care shoes. products. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Not like you're a dermatologist, not like skin related stuff. Well, I get that stuff for free. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only the best. Yeah. I thought about that actually. Like would I pay for Botox if I had to pay out of pocket? I'm not sure. I probably would now that I've I've been doing it for so long. Like, I don't know if I could go back to not doing. <laughs> That's amazing. The other thing you talk about is really why it's so important for a female physician to have their financial house in order, right? Because if you do, then it allows you to have a longer maternity leave with less stress if you've got all your ducks in a row. It allows you the flexibility to get higher quality Childcare, if you have all your ducks in a row. But the other two things that you talk about, I was hoping you could you could go into a little more detail. Is if you have financially ill prepared parents, right? And so I have three boys, or I'm actually my wife's pregnant with our third, so I'm about to have three boys. So it usually does fall on the the female of the siblings to end up taking care of the parents, whether that's right or wrong. I mean, I 
clearly it's not right, but it's just how our culture lies. So that making sure that parents are, are taken care of, and clearly this doesn't just apply to the, fe- the female physicians out there, but mm-hmm. within that context. So what is your advice to someone who recognizes that their parents are financially ill-prepared? What do you do? So if you're married, this is one of those difficult conversations you have to have with your partner because it's, it's a kind of a, it's a boundary issue too, right? So I think your other spouse has to be on the same page of what you guys are prepared to do to help them because this stuff could really ruin relationships. You know, because think about, you can think about like if one, let's just say the wife, you know, feels strong that she has to fork over thousands of dollars a month to the, her family and her husband doesn't agree with it, like that's just not good. So that's a difficult conversation. That's one of the questions that I think needs to be, or topics that need to be talked about before getting married. I actually have a, a list of like premarital financial questions to discuss. Um, and that's one of them. That's a big one, I think, because it's, it's basically like, what's the, what's the deal with money with our parent with our, not just parents, but like siblings, because it's not just parents that don't have their financial stuff together. It could be a sibling, right? Oh, yeah. And if you're oh. the physician in the family, you're likely yep. going to be a higher earner. Yep. Um, the, the only situation would be like the Emmanuel brothers. Where... Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that yeah, you have to just kind of agree on what you're willing to do and be on the same page because it's, it's, it's taxing on whoever, not just the other spouse, but also the person who has to help their parents, right? Because it's like, especially these days with doctors graduating with so much debt and they're trying to dig themselves out of a negative net worth and then trying to build their future, their children's future. And now they got to worry about their parents. Like it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I feel fortunate that right now that doesn't seem to be something I have to worry about, but I still, I sort of know the deal with my mom and my brother and they're okay, but they definitely could be in a better place. And so I sort of know that by default, I'll be the person that will have to sort of pick up the pieces if something happens. And so if anything, it motivates me to make sure that I make more money. I might sound like a strange sort of thing, but it just it's, it's definitely motivation for me to accumulate wealth so that I can take care of everyone and more. Yeah, so you have that, you have that flexibility to take care of the people that took care of you. Basically. And then, you know, I have my own thoughts on, you know, what you should you do? Should you just fork over money? You know, I don't, because forking over money is just kind of a band-aid. So I, I do feel strongly that if you are going to help a person, when I say financial prepared, I also mean, you know, they're maybe a train wreck when it comes to money and they're just like sieves. Then I do feel that you, then you have the right to kind of have access to their accounts or really kind of keep tabs. Like I don't think it should just be money given over with no strings attached. I mean, if you want to do that, I think that's fine. But I think it's better if you kind of take a more proactive role because I guess the question is like, do you want to just be giving them money forever because they're never going to get their stuff together? Or do you want to try to help them? But I think you have to have some boundaries too, because at the end of the day, your nuclear family, I think is your first priority, not them. Do you have any specific recommendations? Like do you buy them an annuity where it's basically like an allowance? You buy them an annuity and then every month they get a certain amount of money from that. You know, I think it depends on the situation. I think an annuity is, you know, one thing you could consider. I think depending on their living situation. I, I've, for example, I know some people who have, you know, gone so far as to, you know, buying them like a small home or an apartment where like they're paying the mortgage, but then in return, sort of they're getting a property out of it, right? Or just paying for things directly versus just handing over cash. 
So paying directly for their housing, you know, paying directly for groceries versus giving them a sum of money, which they may just spend on stupid stuff. So it just kind of depends on where they are on the pendulum of irresponsibility. But I think discussing with your, your significant other a spouse and really setting like strict boundaries, like what are we prepared to do? Like what's the, what's sort of the limit that we have? And, you know, also just, you have the right to say no. I know they're your parents, but it's a choice too, to help them or not. And, and to what degree, right? It might not be like a hard no. It might be just less than what they're asking for. Um, or, or, you know, I think a lot of doc- siblings. I think doctors have a hard time saying no and we're people pleasers by nature. So I think it's kind of, this is kind of a tough thing, but it's really just about boundaries. And I think we feel, most people feel that boundaries are just, are tough, but you know, boundaries are, are necessary for like self-respect and for people to respect you. And it's, you know, really taking care of yourself. Cause I think a lot of us don't really take care of ourselves very well. Isn't that what everyone tells us about our kids too? They like boundaries. They need, they don't seem to like the boundaries when I'm putting it up for them. I, I will tell <laughs> you, my children do not enjoy the boundaries that I create for them, but yeah, I guess they, they, they need them. They need them in the same, in the same regard. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about something a little more positive, right? <laughs> so, you know, a female physician, uh, especially like your website, wealthy mom MD, if it's, uh, if they're a mom, you've got your work life, you've got your home life, you've got a lot of responsibility, and there's a lot of crap in your life that you don't want to necessarily deal with. So let's talk about outsourcing. What are your favorite things to outsource? How do you do it? What recommendations do you have? Yes, I love outsourcing. So it really comes down to time. Time, as you know, is it's really our most, it's our most precious commodity. It's extremely limited. It's, you know, much more important than money. So I just feel like our time is limited. And what do we, and I think it's something like, what do you want to spend your time on? So let's just think of like a typical woman physician who, let's just say works five days a week, just to kind of make things easy works. Let's just say eight, eight hour days and has children. So it's like when you are home and you want to spend, hopefully you want to, you like to spend time with your family when you're not working. And so like, do you really want to spend the time not working, like cleaning your home? Unless you're someone who loves to clean, like that's something you don't have to do. So for me, outsourcing is, it's a way to sort of uh, buy back your time. And so some, I know a lot of women who don't like to cook. And so they outsource that by either, I guess there's takeout, there's also personal chefs, there's those meal kits, there's all sorts of ways. And I feel like this is actually a huge business now, how to make meal prep easier for busy professionals, right? So that's one thing. We don't outsource that because we do like to cook, although Matt does a lot of the cooking and planning at this point. And so it's really just uh, outsourcing things that you don't enjoy doing and to give you back time. Because when, you, when you're home and not working, I think at least most of us want to really spend that time doing things we love. Yeah, for the, for the frugal people out there that try to slash their expenses as much as possible, I think it just comes down to math, right? Like you have a certain amount that you make after taxes. And if it's going to take you longer than, a, than like, you know, whatever the hourly rate that you make is post-tax to have someone else do it, it makes more sense for you to spend more time in the office so you can spend less time doing that. It's just straightforward subtraction. Yeah, I, that's definitely one way to, to look at it. I mean, I think it's, it kind of makes you feel better when you know that if you pay someone to clean, it's, you know, 
let's say 20 bucks an hour and you can make $200 an hour as a doctor. That's sort of simple math right there. But for me, I really think of it as like a quality of life issue. And obviously there are times in our lives where you can't outsource or you have less you know, resources to do that. So it's not like, I think I had a cleaning lady like, did I have one during residency? No, I didn't. I feel like, oh, white, when I became an attending, I remember hiring one and I felt like, oh my God, I have a cleaning lady. You're a baller. <laughs> and I only had them come once a month because I felt really weird about paying for Because it was like 80 bucks. This is New York City. So everything's like $100 for like anything. And I lived in a tiny place. I'm like, yeah, you're paying I'm 80 like, bucks for someone to, to clean a 200 square foot apartment. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> that so, work out. But I, you know, I just did it once a week. You know, now we have someone come every two weeks, but we have a lot more mess with the toddler now, as you know. So every two weeks seems like almost not enough sometimes. But it's, but it's enough. Yeah, we have someone, we have someone come in once a week because that's, that's, a, see, I wanted to outsource it to a robot. I wanted to get the Roomba, <laughs> but uh, you know, the Roomba only does the floors. So uh, unfortunately, so I want to outsource as much as possible for the, for the, to the robots. Yeah. Yeah. So for, I really just see it as like a time and a quality time issue because when I'm not working, like I don't want to spend my time doing things like that. So. But I would assume you don't outsource your finances. No, I do not. Yeah. <laughs> But I like, I like doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and it's interesting because the expertise that you're bringing to the table has nothing to do with what you did at Morgan Stanley, right? It's funny. People think I learned money. Yeah. Because some people know that I worked at Morgan Stanley and they think, oh, that's where you learned money. But I mean, Morgan Stanley's, a, I don't even know. Are they a bank? They're not like a bank bank. They're a wealth management firm, I guess. And they do I trade. That's still, I think that's still a bank. I don't think you have to be a brick and mortar to be called, you know, like with checking accounts and stuff to be called a bank. I think it's still technically a bank because they do. They like, do financial transactions. <laughs> um, but I worked in the, I was in IT. So I was like the person who made sure their infrastructure was running. I wasn't like a desktop computer support person. I was like their, their like mainframes person. Yeah. So, and, and here, yet here you are. Doing personal and finance. I, I pretend I don't know anything about computers anymore. <laughs> Which is so sort you've of... Outsourced, you've outsourced all of that. Well, no, well, because I did Unix systems. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's that was my expertise back then. And it literally has been replaced by medical knowledge. Like I, I remember very little from those days. But I guess I consider myself more tech savvy than the average person my age. So, you know, so, you know, for example, when I started my blog, I did that by myself for a long time. Oh yeah, I need I need to outsource that business. I need to start expanding my website and find someone to outsource that because I will I will not be I will not be enjoying that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, I've outsourced certain parts of my business, and it's partially because I just don't have time. Because I think you know, depending on what your business is, like you really should be spending. So for it's kind of like being you know, me being a dermatologist. Like it doesn't make sense for me to be checking in people and rooming them, right? Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, so. You want to do what your maximum earning potential is. Or yeah. maximum enjoy, enjoyment potential for that. Yeah. Matter. All right. Well, are there any other, because you, you run this Facebook group, are there any other issues that are specific to female physicians that seem to come up over and over again that you think would bear discussing? Well, I think women, you know, and I'm, just, I'm generalizing here, obviously, but I think women are still sort of looked at by society at large as not sort of dealing with the money and the checkbooks. So I, f- I see a lot of women sort of, I don't know if complaining is the word, but like sort of mention like they're not taken seriously when they're like buying a car, for example. 
or or even when her you know the female physician and her husband are talking with a financial advisor they're not they're not they're not really like heard or respected does that make sense yeah they're probably not being looked at it wouldn't surprise me if you're at a, sitting at a meeting with someone and they're predominantly looking at the male even though the male might be clueless about the finances and the the woman who who runs the show like if you and Matt were to sit there with a financial advisor it would not surprise anybody that you know, he would be the one that the advisor would look at, even though you're the one that runs the show on that front. Yeah. So that's just, that just happens a lot. And then, you know, there's the whole, even just in the, within the workplace when there's, you know, female and male doctors. And I think just, we have, we've come a long way, just women in general, but we still have a, a ways to go in terms of how we're treated sometimes. And so, but I think more and more women are becoming doctors, as you know, med school's like what, 50-50, but the workforce is still still like what, 70% men? I think it's probably, when I was in med school, which is now at this point, like 15 years ago, it was 55-45. There were more women than men. It was oh, awesome. It was more in the Northeast, um, but it was it was growing. So it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't 50-50, but at this point, more female than male. Yeah, my class was 50-50. I, went to, I started med school in 2004, but it's going to take time for that to sort of trickle up because uh, I think it's still 70% men. And, you know, this is sort of off topic, but, you know, women physicians are, we are more likely to, you know, not work full time. And so, so there's that. And so people that I've heard arguments saying that uh, we're responsible for the doctor shortage. <laughs> No, doctors, we're a guild. <laughs> we decide how many doctors we graduate each year. We're the ones who are responsible for a doctor shortage. You know what we do? We're having to make more doctors, right? Like we can do that. It's not like gonna, there's going to be a significant dip in the quality if we decide to expand the, the classes. So yeah, I, 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 I've heard that argument before. It just doesn't hold water. Yeah. Sorry, but that, yeah. But but what, what about in terms of like brass tax advice, right? Like something that, that female physicians who aren't comfortable handling the finances, something that they need to know, something that they could start doing tomorrow, or maybe even savvy, you know, questions that the more savvy ones are, are asking that, that you find yourself answering over and over, like some of the more popular blog posts. Well, I think so for women, like I talk a lot about making sure they're getting their insurances in order because there are special considerations for women versus men. So I'm talking specifically about life and disability insurance because partially it's because of our ability to get pregnant. So you can have a completely normal, quote unquote, normal pregnancy, but you will get dinged for certain things like having a C-section apparently is considered an abnormal outcome. And so that can affect your premiums. And so a lot of women don't realize that. A lot of women think about these insurances after they have children because it kind of makes sense, right? When you, when you have kids and you start thinking like, oh crap, I got to get my stuff in order because I've got people depending on me. And so that's sort of when a lot of people think about this. Now, fortunately, most women have perfectly normal pregnancies. They are fine. And so it really doesn't affect them. But for some women, you know, pregnancy can dramatically change their health situations in terms of their insurability. So I'll give myself as an example. So I got my disability insurance right after residency and I was single and, you know, didn't have children back then. And so when you got to do all this underwriting, and so I was like, well, maybe I should just buy some life insurance because in my mind, I thought, well, I do want to have a family at some point and I'm I'm only going to you know, get older. And then, you know, as you know, that life insurance is, it gets more expensive the older you are. So I just went ahead and bought a $1 million, I think 20 year term policy, just because I already had everything done. And then when I met 
Matt, my fiance, and we were getting serious. I was like, maybe I should get a second life insurance policy because I knew we were going to try to have children. And let me tell you, that policy got approved like two weeks before I got pregnant. And I ended up getting gestational diabetes and I actually had two postpartum hemorrhages. And so I was talking to my my agent and I have a good relationship because he's one of the sponsors of my blog. And he told me that I didn't get that policy before I became pregnant. My life insurance premium probably would have tripled. Wow. So, because having gestational diabetes is a risk factor for diabetes and diabetes, as you know, is a risk factor for dying younger. So, I mean, it makes sense. Many, many comorbidities <laughs> that you don't often see in otolaryngology and dermatology, but yes. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah. So just like stuff, that's something I really talk about because a lot of women aren't thinking about that. A lot of people, it's funny. I see a lot of women talking about disability insurance and it's, I think it's because, you know, the agents have done a good job sort of infiltrating residency programs and sort of, you know, making sure that we know that. So I had heard of disability insurance as a resident. I didn't understand. This is before I kind of really dove into finances and I didn't know what it was. And I, it kind of felt like a scam to me. Like this stuff is expensive. Why do I need I still this? feel that way about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it no, is expensive. No, 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 no question about it. But no, the, the more scam I, part, the scam part. I know it oh, is. Oh, the scam. But... Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not a scam when you need it. So yes. I would love to hear from more doctors who have needed it. And I'm actually actively searching. And I found a few because I think it's important to hear their stories because we don't really hear enough about them. So I have met someone locally that had to use her policy and she's obviously very happy she had a very good policy in place. So and she's older and so she's actually in my group and someone in my group recently posted about like, do I really need this? It's so expensive. And so she sort of chimed in that she's been using her policy for the past 20 years. Because anecdotal evidence is going to change your decision-making in a much stronger way than any type of statistical information because that's how the yeah. human brain thinks. But you know, what's what's kind of funny and ironic is we're doctors and so we see people get sick all the time. But for some reason, we think we're like infallible, right? Well, so. I also think that because it's frequently sold by insurance salesmen that we know are getting a commission, we don't necessarily trust them with the information they're giving us. And that's why we're reluctant to buy. I think there's that oh, yeah, element sure. of just distrust in someone whose job is a salesman, even though really it's cutting off our nose despite our face. <laughs> well, I think just understanding it and sort of accepting the... I do, I do know one or two people who've, who have uh, chosen not to buy it because they don't, they don't think they're going to need it, even if they get disabled. That's a different conversation. So I guess they just feel like they have the financial resources to to deal with it. Right. So. If you're financially independent, right? That's part of the whole fire movement is that you don't need to have disability insurance if you're financially independent. That's one of the big advantages of, of that happening. Yeah. Or you know, it's funny. I hear that a lot. Like I, I don't know. I don't think it's wise to cancel it so quickly when you become, because like, let's say the worst happens. Let's say you like literally become disabled the day you're fire or whatever, fire. Like your expenses disabled are going to be way more than not being disabled. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah, I absolutely. Know, I just but feel you like, don't necessarily need to have the same. Oh yeah, you can leave. policy. And also, if you're part of that movement, your expenses are not going to be very high. So you don't necessarily need to have some gigantic policy that someone with huge expenses is going to need. So yes. I think there's both. There's both sides to that. Yeah, and you know, total disability is not common. It's the partial disability that is way more common, and that can really affect. For example, you know, we both do procedures, right? So let's say I don't know, I'm right. Let's just say like I couldn't use my right hand, but I could still think and like 
see, right? And I need to, I need my eyes to do my, my job, but I won't be able to do procedures. But that would significantly impact my ability to do procedures, which obviously would impact my income significantly because procedures pay more than just be looking at someone's skin. So I think that's sort of, I think people sort of forget about that part. You know, you might still be able to work, but you can only make 30% of what you made. And so that is catastrophic for most people early in their careers. Yeah, I think those that that issue specific to females that having a, a child, if there is anything that happens during that pregnancy that can lead to higher premiums is something that that we don't, I, I mean, clearly I wasn't thinking about it, but I don't know how often people are thinking about it. Clearly not as much given the frequency with which you you it's brought up on your um, on your Facebook group. But before we wrap up, are, are there any other issues that you think would bear bear mentioning? Not so much issues. I just think it's important. So even if someone decides to hire a financial advisor, and I'm not anti-advisor, I feel like a lot of these finance blogs are. Like there's nothing wrong with it. Just like you and I hire someone to clean our place. Like there's nothing wrong with outsourcing things, but because no one will care more about your money than yourself. Like I just think it behooves you to, to really just understand some basics. And if you do want to outsource someone to kind of like take care of things, I think that's totally fine. So I never think that's bad. I, a lot of, I see, at least in the groups that I'm in, I feel like people kind of poo-poo anyone who hires someone. I think that's just kind of lame. Well, also it, it's, it's not unreasonable to hire someone to bounce some ideas off of because let's say you, um, you read your blog and, you know, I had the physician philosopher on the show and everybody knows the white coach investor. Let's say you read ideas on those. They're not necessarily in agreement with each other, maybe, or you don't necessarily agree with something that you read or you do, and it doesn't apply to you. I think it's reasonable to have someone to bounce an, an expert in the field to bounce those ideas off of. They might not, they might not have to actively manage your money. But especially for um, someone who's fee only, sit down with them and and consult with them every so often to just make sure that you're you're at the doing everything reasonably. No, absolutely. And let's just be honest: not everyone's going to be like reading books and reading blogs and spending all spending a lot of time like I do reading stuff. And no one, not everyone, ha- most people don't have that interest. I'll just be honest, right? So, like, I think it's just kind of understanding some basics and then. You know, it's totally fine to just, yeah, have have a professional to do that because there's nothing wrong with hiring good help. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You don't have to outsource it completely, but at least get a little bit of information so that you can have an informed conversation and then let them, exactly. let them guide you through the rest. All right, well, Dr. Bonnie Koo, where can people find you online? Sounds like a lot of places. <laughs> well, my website's Wealthy Mom MD, and then I am on sort of all the major social media outlets and my handles wealthy at wealthy mom md uh, i'm not super active on instagram i guess facebook is sort of where i am and then my name is just you know my full name bonnie Koo on facebook right well this has been a really interesting and informative conversation and i'm sure our, our listeners have gotten a lot out of it so really i you're between the family and your blog and the dermatology you are, you are very busy. So I really appreciate you sacrificing some of your evening to spend some time with us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.
Today's guest is not an attorney, accountant, or financial advisor, and neither am I. This information should not be considered personalized financial advice, and we will not be held liable for the use of any information contained within this interview. It is your responsibility to verify anything you've heard using other trusted and reputable resources.